You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? And if you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. Have you heard the term situationship? I've been seeing this term across different media outlets, but hadn't really dug into it much until I found Maisha Battle, today's guest, writing about how it might be the future of dating. And of course, that piqued my interest. Situationship seemed like a terrible idea to me, but Maisha has really changed my opinions on them. Now I'm thinking a situationship is exactly what many 20-somethings might need at this time in their dating life. If you haven't heard of the term situationship before, it's defined as a relationship that is emotionally connected, but without commitment or future planning. I think it's beyond a casual hookup or friends with benefits. A situationship could include going on dates, having sex, building intimacy, but excludes labels like boyfriend and girlfriend, at least at this point of the relationship. Maisha Battle is a sex and dating coach and the author of This Is Supposed to Be Fun, How to Find Joy in Hooking Up, Settling Down, and Everything in Between, which I absolutely love that subtitle. I think it was really, really clever. But with her expertise, we had this really great conversation about if a situationship is right for you, the benefits of this kind of relationship archetype, and how to exit this kind of relationship if it's no longer what you're looking for. We also talk a ton about other great dating subjects like how to set up your app dating profile to attract the right kind of people for you. If you're looking for some clarity or support or maybe even both in your dating life right now, this is the perfect episode for you. And speaking of episode, this is episode number 99. I am so stoked for episode 100 next week. I hope you guys tune in for that. I still am unbelievably amazed that I made it this far in my podcasting journey. I've had so much fun creating this content for you, having these amazing conversations with so many incredible guests. And if you want to return the favor, of course, you can leave us a rating and review. We've been pushing to get... 100 rating or reviews on Apple Podcast by the 100th episode. Man, you guys have done a really great job showing up over the last few weeks and helping us get closer and closer to that goal. So if you want to take a moment and pause and give us a rating, that would just make me so happy. But honestly, I just want you to tune into next week and kind of enter this next journey of the podcast with us. All right, let's get into the conversation. I've done enough blabbering already. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the certified clinical sexologist and dating coach, Maisha Battle. Well, Maisha, I'm super stoked for our conversation today. I feel like, actually, I think I cold pitched you via Instagram. Yeah. I can't remember what podcast I heard you on, but I'm like, I have to have her on my <laughs> podcast. And we've had some other sexperts on. And I don't know if you know Susan Bratton, Dr. Judson Brandeis, a few people that have all come on. I haven't really covered dating too extensively, especially from the lens of I'm single. 
And I'm outdating more so from the lens of dating your current partner and long-term mm-hmm. partnership. Maybe that's just me as a host being in a long-term relationship right now. That That's where my head was. Yeah. But I'm excited to, to cover this topic in detail today. But maybe we start with bringing you back a little bit to study abroad. How did living in Amsterdam influence your ideas on sex and maybe more particularly your ideas on sex communication? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the rural South, even though I was born on the West Coast in California. My family relocated when I was really young. And so I grew up in the Bible Belt and had a pretty strong idea of what the world around me that I knew thought about sex. And it was, you save it for marriage, you have it with someone you love at the very least, if not within marriage. And, you know, girls who had too much sex were sluts, you know, guys were applauded for it. And so there was this double standard. And and I really internalized that. I think a lot of my early dating, especially throughout college, was sort of informed by some of those messages, even though I was more maybe on the progressive side and and open. But my last semester of college, I studied abroad at the University of Amsterdam. And I just, I was fortunate enough, even though I was in an international program to like have a few Dutch friends or acquaintances. And it was interesting to hear how dating was just different for them. For instance, girls are more likely to be encouraged to be the aggressors, the people who ask, you know, their male counterparts out. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more lax ideas about what sex is for. The red light district in Amsterdam is notorious. You know, it's it's a place for sex tourism. And this in and of itself is like seen as like something people can opt into. It's not really that big of a deal. Although I do think like in some circles, people might judge you if you have that as like your regular weekend hobby, et cetera. But like generally speaking, there's just an openness. And in fact, the most striking thing to me was the messaging, public service messaging around sex. So I remember this commercial that came on TV and I was like, what's going on here? I don't really understand. And I asked my friend to translate it for me, but basically... The commercial went like this. It was a couple, guy and a girl, they go to a party, they drink, they make out, they have sex, you know, and then they like wake up the next morning and they're like, oh, like not feeling so great. And the PSA was like, I can't believe we fucked without a condom. So it wasn't, we went out, we got drunk, maybe we were a little too loose with ourselves last night. It was like, no, like, the responsible thing to do was have sex with a condom and we didn't do that. So that's the most Mm. important thing. And this just really threw me, especially as a sex education student, or I was a health education student and my focus was sexuality education. And so I'd seen, you know, what we do in the States with sex and the messaging that we try. It's just prevention, 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 sure. But it's also just abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. And this was the prevention without the abstinence message. It was acknowledging the humanity of young adults, being young adults, but trying to empower them with, you know, this notion of taking care of themselves. And just because you've, you know, had a really fun night and maybe got a little too drunk 
you should always remember to protect yourself, right? So this was just, I mean, mind-blowing to me. I don't know, hearing this, I don't know if your mind is blown, but my mind was blown. Yeah, I don't think, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I didn't quite have Bible Belt's influence on me, but to some degree, it was that. It wasn't wear a condom and protect yourself. It was wait until you're old enough to have sex. Particularly, you should probably do it in the order of, getting married, then have sex, then so forth. And yeah, I struggled with that because then you never really could turn to parents or adults to actually ask some of the important questions about sex. And there was embarrassment even to like walk into a drugstore and, and buy some condoms sometimes too, even though that was the appropriate thing to do. So therefore we opt for the easier thing, just like pulling out or <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just like not safe practices whatsoever. Like it, it was mind blowing to me looking back. I made it through my teenage years and didn't get somebody pregnant and didn't get an STD. It's kind of crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, same. I, I definitely made some messy choices <laughs> in my youth. I'm not gonna, even as a health education student and like, quote unquote, knowing better and all of that jazz. But I mean, we're human. It's fascinating to me how things can vary by culture. And I also find it fascinating that, you know, you, you were mentioning how it's difficult to even ask the question. And, and sex is one of those areas where it's like dangerous to even be curious because the curiosity means that you're going to do something with that knowledge. It's like when a kid asks you, like, how big is the moon? <laughs> you know, and then like, <laughs> how many stars are in the sky? You know, <laughs> it's curiosity. And it's not like they're going to become an astronaut tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's curiosity. And most of us are curious about sex and have nowhere to turn. Because if we ask a question, most of us have this experience. Like if we ask a question, we're either shamed for having that question or there's like a million follow-up questions as to why you want to know that. And I think that spills over to conversations with our partner sometimes as well. Like we've felt guilt and shame around having these conversations with friends and adults and parents all throughout our teenage and 20s. And now we struggle to have conversations about sex with our partner as well. And many different facets. And once again, I don't think there should be a whole lot of shame around having conversation. Uh, having a new relationship with a new partner, there are ways that they're going to want to be pleasured that all of your previous partners have not wanted to be pleasured. And you have to communicate those needs. But I find that to be challenging. So do you have an approach and maybe some sample verbiage around how to work through a sexual issue or misalignment with your partner? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that I think it's great that you recognize that every new partner is going to need different things for their pleasure. Because I think sometimes, especially my male clients, hold a lot of sense of responsibility for their partner's pleasure, but they don't really ask the questions that need to be asked. They're just like, oh, well, I'm like good at sex because other people have told me I'm good at sex. So now I'm going to be good at sex with this person. Right? <laughs> and it's like, well... And, and, and to be honest, I mean, like, what a wonderful thing to be good at sex, to be known for that. But like, it's not a complete picture for so many reasons. And it's so important to give yourself permission to be wrong about 
what people like or don't like and to not take that to heart because they're completely different people than your past partners. But I do see this a lot with especially like my female clients who struggle to orgasm and, you know, their partners are like, well, I've never had a partner who's never orgasm. I'm making it my mission to like make you have one, you know, and that's not how it should work, in my opinion. I mean, I do love a couple's project, but I don't think that like adding that amount of pressure is really the way to do it. I think that for from my experience working with clients, what is really helpful is to sort of depersonalize sexual feedback as best you can in terms of like, this isn't your fault. It's not that like my body is responding to your body negatively, but like there are certain things that I need. So I guess depersonalizing it from the other partner, personalizing it for you, making it very clear to someone that you understand your body, you know what it needs, and you can guide them in the right direction, right? And that's that's something that also requires us to do our own work in terms of understanding what we like and what we don't like on our own, which can be really scary for people. And so it's important to start at home <laughs> with that exploration and then work on practicing giving feedback. So just to sort of talk about the book for a second, I've been really surprised by the feedback. I mean, it's been really positive, but one of the best things that I heard recently from someone who reached out to work with me is that they communicated before having sex what they needed to make that experience good for them. And this was someone who identifies as female. And they were like, it was mind-blowing. And they did it in casual situations. They did it with someone who they now see as a long-term partner as well. And just that process can be so helpful. Knowing what you want, being able to express it. And it's hard. It's nerve-wracking because you're fighting against a lot of what our culture says about sex, which is you don't talk about it, you know? Even before... Even, Even before. before you're about to have sex. <laughs> it's like, before. we're about to do this, but we can't talk about this. <laughs> we can't talk about it. It's supposed to just blow, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So like how many other things in our lives do we do that with? You know, there's so many things in life that need a conversation before we do them, mm. with, especially with mm. other people, you know, when we collaborate. So yeah, I think this is... This is so key for people to have positive sexual experiences. And it's also a key in breaking rape culture apart, shredding it to pieces, you know, breaking this veil of silence that we have around sex and what we expect and what we want. I think the culture of silence, and this is, this is something that I've talked to many people about, but the culture of silence that we have around sex does sort of mean that we can't talk about when sex is good. And that means that we're definitely not going to talk about when sex is bad, right? So that's something that I think we really could all use some practice in. Noticing what our needs are, communicating them to partners, and then allowing our partners to show up for us. That's another thing. I think there's also that fear that like if we have a need or we say something that it won't be respected. And to be honest, that's the case for a lot of people. But part of it is sort of going through that process of 
understanding what it feels like to have a boundary respected and noticing when a boundary is not respected and being able to take care of yourself in those moments. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. Yeah. If we make a shift in conversation now, I do want to talk a little bit about dating. I think you have so much good insights around dating. And I feel like it's hard to talk about dating in 2023 without talking about dating apps. Yeah. So let's start. Let's start with dating apps. Do you have a general strategy on how to set up your online dating profile that reflects and attracts who you really want in your life? Yeah, I think it's really important, again, to start at home and to understand why you're even doing the dating thing in the first place. And for a lot of people, it might be that you're motivated by multiple different factors. You might be interested in hooking up with people. You might be ultimately looking for a long-term relationship. But sort of getting really clear what you're willing to engage with and what you're not, because you're putting yourself in an environment where like literally anything is possible. (laughs) So it helps to sort of root yourself in your own reality of this is what I'm ultimately here for. And putting that forward. So that's the biggest mistake that I think a lot of people make is they want to put a profile up that like looks great and like reads easy. And I'm so dateable, (laughs) you know, like um, I'm the most dateable person available, but that's not necessarily going to land you the most quality matches because people aren't seeing what makes you you. And people need to see that, you know, they need to see not necessarily, you know, warts and all and no disrespect to warts, like warts are cute sometimes. But, you know, all the things that we like try to hide, I would say, the things that we feel maybe define us, but we don't necessarily want to like show that too soon. You know, I think sometimes people think that like aspects of their personality are like difficult for people to handle, right? And my philosophy is like owning that gives you the opportunity to sort of attract people who want a partner who has those kinds of qualities. Yeah. Do you have an example on that? Oh, I mean, like, you know, clients who are like super talkative and in their head all the time, you know what I mean? Like just like very cerebral people. And they're like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to connect with people because I need that kind of connection. And most people aren't, you know, into that. And of course, like, You're in an app space where people are flipping through tons and tons of profiles and you need a hook, essentially. And I think sometimes those things like, hey, I'm a pretty analytical person who loves to go deep in conversation and things like that. Some people aren't going to be wanting that in a hookup situation and some people are or some people are going to want that for dinner company and some people aren't. Like some people are going to want to keep it nice and light and easy breezy. I think people who are deep and analytical, et cetera, or some combination, they need to put that forward. And then they will match with people who are like them or who would appreciate a partner like them. That's just one kind of easy example, I'd say. But I think, like I said, everybody wants to seem easy. Like I'm so agreeable, you know? (laughs) And that's not the most helpful way to approach dating in my opinion. 
Yeah. And if you're marketing to everybody, then you really market to nobody. That's right. (laughs) We know that uh, as podcasters, as marketers, as business owners, we get it. Like if if you don't really narrow in, then nobody feels like they're really resonating with you. And it seems maybe counterintuitive to narrow in how you're trying to message yourself on dating apps. But I'm guessing you probably find the most success by doing that. Or you're just going out on all these dates that all they end up being is first dates because they don't they don't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's where a lot of my clients, when they come to work with me, find themselves. One thing that I wanted to point out about like having that sort of like niche perspective, people think that it's limiting in a bad way. Like they kind of get a little scarcity mindset, so to speak. And maybe when they make tweaks and changes that sort of do put their whole more of their personality. I don't want to say you can put your whole personality in a dating profile, but more of it. When people give themselves the opportunity to sort of put that more forward, their matches might go down. But I see that the quality does increase. And then also there are some surprises. And I think about this even in my own work. So of course, for writing the book, I had to have a target demographic. They need to know who to sell it to, right? So... A lot of the client anecdotes are millennials, you know, people who are of my same generation, who it's a wide range, but it's, you know, typically between like 25 and 40. And I've been so surprised by people who are older or younger than that, who have found the book incredibly helpful. So I, I just, that's like one <laughs> sort of tangent, but it's it's related in the sense that like, You think you're limiting, but you don't know who you will ultimately resonate with. All you can do is just continue to be yourself. And I think the book for me is being myself, putting what I have to offer into the world as a dating profile can be your way of putting yourself out there into the world in a unique way that's going to attract, yes, the people that are like going to be best for you, in my opinion. So to play devil's advocate with you, is there... Can I be too limiting, especially Mm. like physical characteristics? Like I only want a girl that's 120 pounds or less. Like that (laughs) seems like like a ridiculous thing to put in. But if we were really talking about our previous thread there and we just want to like eliminate anything, where could this potentially like niching down go wrong? Okay, so what I was mentioning was putting your characteristics forward so that you attract people that see you. What you're describing Mm -hmm. is having a set criteria and expecting other people to fall into that, which is incredibly limiting, especially Mm -hmm. when we're talking about physical traits. I think that the way that we get surprised in dating is by staying open to like who shows up for our most authentic version of ourselves. And that may look very different than what you had pictured in your mind. But I've been doing all of these events to promote the book and and this question kind of comes up. And I ask people, raise your hand if you yourself or you know someone has found a partner who has said, they're nothing like what I thought I'd end up with. And literally 90% of the crowd will raise their hand. So Mm -hmm. it's really important. And I've even known people who have done the practice of like just saying yes to anybody who asked them out right? As a a sort of experiment to see like how they get along with 
various people who are attracted to them. And ultimately, like, yeah, they end up with someone completely different than what they would think they would end up with. And I think that's because our minds tend to be really limited. And we also have our past that informs what we think we want or deserve in a partner. And that is limiting. Like there are so many different human beings out there. So, and it it just, it's more helpful to focus on yourself and how you're showing your life and your experiences to potential daters. And that you're also evaluating other people on that basis too. Like how much are they showing me? Does this seem real or authentic? You know, gauging that on dates even, like, is this who they said they were on their profile? I don't know. Seems a little off to me, you know? Yeah, that's that's where I think people can have the most fun in the process is by staying open to who shows up for their authentic self. I think that makes sense. That's a good yeah. breakdown or separation between the two. I, that really resonated with me. What about, <laughs> I like your article, the, your recent article on situationships mm. and this new... I don't know if it's a new feature. Sorry, I haven't been on dating apps in quite some time too, but Tinder now has like essentially six different categories that you can pick for, pick from. Like, what is it? Long, like looking for long-term, looking for long-term, but open to short-term, looking for mm-hmm. short-term, open to long-term. And they they do a couple of delineations of this as well. And you talk about situationships and defining that as this like gray area so that we can help people that aren't quite sure what, what they want here. Can you expand on that a little bit? And I can, I can read a couple of, of quotes from, from this article too, to help shape this conversation if you need me to. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I've been fascinated by the response that it's getting on Twitter because it's, it's in time. And so, you know, there's just like a lot of chatter because time has like millions of followers, you know, and this is the first time that I've written something where I'm like seeing all the responses coming through and being like, huh, that's interesting. But people do what, like what surprised you. The general tone is like, no, this is bad. Always bad. Really? Situation's just bad. And I actually do think that when I was approached to write the piece, that they were expecting something from me that would align with a lot of the the dialogue that's been happening since this term got coined in 2017. But what I was struck by is that when I sat down to write the piece and started, you know, looking into, well, what's happening with situationships now, it seems like young daters want that flexibility. They're saying situationships are what we need because we don't know if we want a long-term relationship. I mean, there are so many unknowns right now in the world. I completely empathize with being a 20-something dating because what is even the future? You know, like, yeah. like are we going to be enmeshed in like a big ball of fire soon? Like, who <laughs> knows? And so I think there's something to this idea, especially now too, where gender, there's a bigger conversation about gender. There's a bigger conversation about sex. And like, you can find a million different resources for any kind of sex that you're interested in. And so I think it's actually opened people up to be more thoughtful about what kinds of relationships they want to enter into. The thing that people hated about situationships when it came out, you know, when it was sort of being coined, and 
I want to distinguish this because people do conflate the two. Like, this is not a friends with benefits situation. This is not somebody that you know in your circle that like, you know, you're like, oh, I kind of like maybe have romantic feelings for them. We're like, we're both single, so we're going to hook up. This is like, it starts from a sexual place. It starts from like a casual place of we give ourselves permission to like hook up. And then we kind of fucked around and caught feelings, you know, and no one wants to have the conversation or maybe one person wants to have it, but the other person doesn't. And the one who wants to have it knows the other person doesn't want to have it. So they just avoid having the conversation. Like (laughs) that's real. And so initially, I think when situationships became this term that, that got popularized, people were really worried about it. Like, oh no, like what are people falling into? Now that you can have any kind of sex that you want, you know, people are just going to opt for this, you know, option where they can have great sex, but also intimacy, you know, without commitment. And I'm kind of like, who cares? Like, I, I, I think if it causes you distress, there's many things you could do about it, including having a conversation with someone about how you don't like what's going on. The biggest thing for me as a sex coach when I work with clients who are dating is to like really impress upon my clients that the only thing they have control over is themselves. So if you do not like being in a relationship where things are undefined and you feel insecure, you have every right to leave that relationship. However, as Tinder's year in review report, I think that's what it's called, year in swipe. Yep report stated young daters are even asking for this they're they're asking for situationships they want something that is a little bit ambiguous to figure out what it is that they want and that's not to say that they're like having sex with lots of different people even because now we do know that like rates of sex have gone down so yeah it's such an interesting time and I was excited to write this piece because anytime there's like a lot of hand-wringing about a social phenomenon around sex, I just want to get in there and understand what's the benefit? Why might people want this? Because people don't do things that don't have a benefit to them. And when I saw that there was this generational sort of trend, I became even more excited that like, oh, this might just be the way in which People are navigating relationships now. And honestly, like if you're getting your sexual needs met and your intimacy needs met and everyone is okay with what's happening, who am I to judge? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want them both in the same and you want a partner that is just with you too, like you can ask for that and you can find that. Like there are plenty of people that want that as well. (laughs) Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. It seems very limiting to an extent. <laughs> well, the people that I think cause the most, you know, ruckus about it on Twitter are people that want long-term relationships and feel scorned by situationships that they were in in their past. That's fair. You know, and I fully get that. I think that like in my perfect world of dating, there would be a lot more transparency. There'd be a lot more communication. And, you know, rather... Like situationships, I think at its core, it's kind of like the definition has changed. It's not this thing that's like no one's talking about it. It's now something that people are like asking for and therefore has a definition. It's just a relationship that does not have a commitment piece to it. 
but you get kind of all the benefits of long-term partnership for as long as the relationship lasts. So let's go that direction then. Say we don't want to be in a situationship. This partnership isn't what we wanted, but this person meant a lot to us during the time that we did spend with them. How do we go about breaking up with someone with compassion and not ghosting them or leaving a bad feeling? I know this is a tough situation in general, but is there a way that we can do it with a little bit of compassion? Yes. And there's a whole chapter devoted to this in my book, which I actually have to like shout out my clients because I'm not the best breaker upper. Really? That surprises me. In my past, (laughs) I just, you know, close the door and move on. I think, (laughs) you know, I, and, and not necessarily with the, the best communication. I'm going to be, I'm going to chalk up to that. But I have seen my clients go through some really compassionate, beautiful breakups. And it's it, it inspired me. It inspired this chapter of the book. And some of the things that I write in the book are based off of what my clients have brought to me as like, this is how I'm taking care of myself. You know, I include in that chapter a sort of like breakup plan, like self-care plan for yourself, because breakups are terrible, whether you're the breaker upper or the person being broken up with. It's just so painful when you develop a real connection with someone and then you realize that that isn't going to work for any number of reasons. But I think that it's really important to have in your mind, if you are the person who is breaking up with someone, what it is that isn't quite working for you. And I know that some of those reasons might be very personal. But finding a way to communicate this to the other person that honors the relationship that you have. You know, it's difficult to tell someone that you don't feel any sexual chemistry with them, for instance. And you might not know that until you actually developed a sexual relationship with them, right? But saying something like, I'm someone for whom like sexual connection is really important and I don't feel that level of sexual connection that I need in order to be in a committed relationship long-term with you. Unfortunately, like I want that. I wanted that to be something we could work on, but it doesn't feel like that's the case. So in the book, I give a framework, which is often used in in business (laughs) to give feedback, but it's situation, behavior, and impact. Like here's the situation. Here are the behaviors that either I've been exhibiting because I've, I want to name that I've been a little cagey about hanging out and like making plans because I'm having these doubts about our relationship. And the impact of that for us is that I don't think this is the right relationship for me. Mm. So having a sort of way to lay this out for yourself and think about it, even being able to give yourself that time to think about it and to acknowledge what are the real reasons why this isn't working for you, that can be incredibly helpful. Even if it doesn't come out perfectly when you try to communicate it to the other person, you've at least done that like work of like, well, I thought about it. I do think this is the right thing for me. And this is just what has to get done. You know, again, it sucks for both parties involved. And there should be a period of time where you, you know, both are able to like take care of yourself, spend time with friends, do things that are really nurturing after that process. It's, Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Makes my stomach hurt already. Is that (laughs) spending time with friends, some of the other things, is that what you 
we're talking about when you're when you're saying your self-care package for your breakup or is there other things involved in that? Yeah, I mean, some sometimes it's just a little self-coaching, especially if you are the person who's being broken up with, like, you know, letting yourself sort of be angry, be sad, but ultimately recognizing that there's nothing you could have done, right? It's like, that was somebody else's decision. And the only thing you can do is take care of yourself. That's very difficult. I think like so many breakup conversations involve the question why, you know? And so that's another thing too. It's like, it's important for you to know what's going on for sure. But when you start getting into the like, why and why didn't you tell me sooner and what's going on? Like, that's where it gets really difficult. So sometimes you have to disengage in that for your own well-being, for everyone's well-being, honestly. And like, yeah, so some of it is like that self-coaching of it wasn't my decision and I don't like this outcome, but it takes two people to want to be in a relationship. And this person ultimately is telling me they don't want to be in a relationship with me. It hurts, but it's it's the truth. I don't know how you could not take a breakup personally. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. if you're the receiver on that. I just, uh, that's oh, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. It's the worst. It's the hardest thing that I have to see my clients go through as well. I have seen them also kind of go through breakups with flying colors and be able to say like, okay, yeah, I did that with integrity and I like feel good about that. And I advocated for my needs and this person, I don't have any like ill will towards. It's just this, it wasn't right. So, yeah. Is there questions I can ask myself or feelings that I can be aware of? to let me know that it might be the right time to be taking a break from dating versus mm. kind of when to maybe put your foot on the gas pedal a little bit more and just get yourself out there. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of lost, but I, do, you, do you know what I'm asking? I do. And it's actually, it's funny because that question comes up a lot. And most people, I think, kind of suffer from productivity culture that we have where they're like, if I just keep going, I'll find what I'm looking for, right? And it's just like repeating the same things. Like you said, going on a million first dates and feeling disillusioned, being burnt out on the process, but still making yourself do it, I don't think it's very productive. I don't think it's supportive of your mental health. I don't think it's supportive of you showing up as your best self in dating. And so that's really like when you start being <laughs> questioning, like, okay, like uh, how much more of this can I do? before I throw in the towel. When you're thinking about throwing in the towel, just throw it in. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's better to take a break, take a pause, refocus on other things in your life that bring you joy to sort of like buoy you back up to a place where you can go back to dating feeling like, okay, I'm ready to try it again. But I, I do think it's hard because also there's a big cultural narrative out there that if you don't go out there and find what you really need or want, there's something wrong with you. And a lot of people who give that terrible advice maybe <laughs> have never updated and don't know how draining that process can be. So yeah, I, I definitely think there's a general call to be more gentle with ourselves and to recognize like if you're starting to feel a little burnt out on the process, it's probably in your best interest to take a break 
and come back to it when you're feeling a little bit more solid, you know, just feeling better about life in general. You wrote this phenomenal book. I don't even think we've dropped the name yet, but it's called This Is Supposed to Be Fun, subtitled How to Find Joy in Hooking Up, Settling Down, and Everything in Between. Yes. If people pick that book up and read it, what are you hoping that they get from it? Hope. Mm-hmm. I have heard time and time again now that I, the book's been out for a while and I'm getting like consultation calls based on people who have read the book already. And like, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Um, That's cool. It gave me hope. It gave me sense that I can do this. You know, people who have never app-based dated before, maybe who have little to no dating experience or have been partnered for a long time and they're kind of getting back into dating and the landscape has completely changed on them since the last time they dated. So a lot of people feel overwhelmed too because they think that app-based dating is just hooking up, you know, and they feel like, oh, I don't even know if that's for me. And it doesn't have to be, you know, that's one of the things that I try to impress in the book is the process can be whatever you want it to be. Like, fortunately, we have a lot more freedom. It doesn't have to be scary. You don't have to do it alone. (laughs) That's that's the other part that I want people to take away is that it doesn't have to be scary and you don't have to do it alone. What chapter has been getting the most response so far? What have you seen the most comments on? I think less than chapters, I've been seeing a lot of praise for the inclusivity of the language. That was really important to me to have a wider range of genders and orientations uh, represented because that's my client base. You know, that's who I serve. And those are the concerns that are in the book are concerns that I see in my clients. And, you know, rather than it be this very like, hetero-centered book. It's kind of inclusive of non-binary folks, people who are in open marriages, people who are queer, people who are gay, people who are exploring their sexualities maybe for the first time. I get a lot of those clients. And so uh, that was real for me. I really wanted it to feel like anybody could pick this book up and, you know, find some nugget of who they are in it. and. I mean, hey, that jives too with my <laughs> my advice about, you know, what to put in your dating profile, like put yourself in there, put your experiences, show the world who you are. And I think like that's coming back to me as well through the book. And you also do dating coaching. So if people are interested in that, they can go to your website, maishabattle.com. You also have this cool monthly electronic magazine that's out there yes. where you share helpful advice, product recommendations, coaching exercises so that people can have a better sex life. So you got a whole lot of goodies out on, on the web. And of course, the book, again, this is supposed to be fun. Maisha, my final question for you. You yeah. had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would, I almost am like, could I get them sooner? You know, can I, can I like, because by the time you're a graduating senior from college, like you've already, you've seen porn, like you, you know, you've, you've maybe even established some habits that you're going to have to unlearn. You know, Maisha, you pick you pick the age group then. You can have them whenever you want. <laughs> but I think in terms of like how I would want to teach the subject that I would want to teach, 
probably graduating senior would be the best. Okay, so we'll start there. Okay. I would teach a sexual communication class. And that wouldn't necessarily be limited to verbal communication. It would certainly include consent conversations, of course, but it would also include how to talk about pleasure, how to give sexual feedback in the moment. And I also would want to provide folks with a way to practice over the course of the term in a non-sexual way, in a non-sexual context, but touch exercises with another human being where it's a low stakes situation and they could give feedback in the moment because practicing these things in real time with another person who is there to give you feedback is so powerful. It's something that I do, um, I assign to my clients on the regular and just for listeners who are curious about how to do this, Betty Martin, she, I believe, created the Wheel of Consent. And she also has videos on YouTube about how to give and receive touch and give and receive feedback. She does this through what she calls the three-minute game. So if you Google three-minute game, Betty Martin, that will turn up and you will have in your hands or in front of your eyeballs an assignment that a sex coach gives their clients to increase their ability to talk more about touch and what you like and what you don't like. Sometimes just like the difference between like a bad sexual situation and a good one is like depth of pressure of how, you know, how someone is touching you, right? And, you know, you're just like, I don't want you to touch me that way. Like that's fine, you know, like you can say that, but it's also helpful to be like, can you please apply more pressure? Can you please avoid light touches? That tickles me. That kind of stuff is very difficult to do from nothing. Most of us were never taught this. And then we're put in a real life situation where we need these communication skills so desperately and we're just not equipped. So I think that would be kind of the trajectory of my class. Maybe like the last few weeks we would be working up to touch and like everybody would maybe be working with a buddy throughout the course of the class so that they could develop a level of trust because I wouldn't want on day one to be like, turn to your neighbor and touch them. Like, how awkward. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, having people develop a relationship with someone that they feel safe with and doing touch exercises in the context of the class. So it's not like outside of class, you would be doing this. But, you know, to have a space where you can explore these things, take notes, notice any like feelings that are coming up for you. Cause sometimes there could be some guilt, some shame, some embarrassment, some anxiety, and just noticing those things I think is so helpful because even being able to communicate that you're anxious, nervous, embarrassed, feeling shame in the moment can be great feedback for a partner to know. What a fun specific class. I love that. I have the wheel consent open now, so we'll drop that into the show notes. But once again, Maisha Battle, author of This Is Supposed to Be Fun. Maisha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and spending time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, 
or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website and those messages go straight into my inbox and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.